the rule of thumb is the more complex the decision, the less people you need taking the decision. That was Boris Polania from DevHub. On this podcast, we begin by digging deep into Boris' background. And it starts in Venezuela, where Boris grew up, studied, and had his first experience as a fintech entrepreneur. On this part, I kept digging deeper because even though we have in some ways the shared experience, I also grew up in Venezuela, we're about a generation apart, and I was just blown away by Boris' insights and because I also believe that there are many of these themes that apply not just to Venezuela, but are universal for all developing countries. Afterwards, we go into DAOs. And here, Boris leverages his background in complexity science to give us some commentary and analysis on the current state of affairs of DAOs broadly, but also the NDC. I believe this is an important podcast because the near ecosystem is at a crossroads. And if you read between the lines, you'll see that Boris is a key person at DevHub and I personally welcome more entities and more people having initiatives to enable and facilitate community governance, community initiatives, and in general, anything to help the near ecosystem grow. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. And without further ado, let's go. Friends, welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I've got with me Boris Polania from New York DevHub. Welcome, Boris. Hey, how are you, man? Thank you. This, Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thanks so much for making it. This is this is very strange. This is very strange. Is it as strange for you as it is for me? Yeah, a little. Yes. <laughs> We've got two Venezuelans speaking in English to each other, which is Strange. Unusual. I'm usually speaking Spanish when I meet our Venezuelans first time. We will do it in English because we've got a very global audience from Jakarta to Lagos to Seattle. And you have a lot to share, sir. There's, there's many stories that I could tell from when we met, but perhaps the funniest one is that I knew you from the days of Aurora, or I guess I knew of you. And your name is Boris. And Aurora has yeah. a, a strong <laughs> representation from Eastern Europe. So when we meet and I'm like, where are you from Venezuela? And I was like, nah, fuck off. I'm from Venezuela. And it was a very special connection because it was like, they're hiding in plain sight. Yeah. To be honest, I, I mean, I didn't know your name was Alejandro. I know you were ABV, but I didn't know your name was Alejandro. And I, I heard your name. Oh, and then oh, I saw, yeah, <laughs> he, he speaks Spanish, but then, I, mean, I wasn't expecting you to be Venezuela. Thanks so much for joining us. There is a lot of your work that I'd like to learn. But first, I'm going to really enjoy talking with guests about their past, their background. For me, when I find someone in crypto that is very motivated and that you often see doing things that go above and beyond their work, it's not just employment for them. It's something that they enjoy, that they're really good at. It's almost like a mission. You know, there seems to be like a purpose there in life. But yeah, maybe why don't you start sharing with me like your background? What was it like to grow up in Venezuela? Like, where does the story begin for Boris? I've been interested in the whole software engineering for a long time. So I've been doing that for a long time. Uh, I My initial plan was to stay in Venezuela. I went to school there, university there, and I was... We even had a, a company there. We were doing fintech with some friends from high school. 
So we were doing that. The, the plan was to stay there, but then things started to deteriorate. So I started to think that probably I should, since this project we were doing, it was called Mobile Plus, we were doing in FinTech, I thought that probably we should uh, try luck outside the United States. After the 2008 crisis, the bank came, the, so the funding for the, for the startup didn't like dry up. So I moved to Miami. And I worked with family there. And then I, I started to do coding, freelancing. And then in, that was, I came in 2010. And then in December, 2011, I went to, I already read something about Bitcoin, but I went to CES in Vegas in January, 2011. And there was some guys there, a guy, he was selling Bitcoin miners. So I said, oh. I really interested in this. No, the computer at those days for me, I just came to the state recently married. So I decided to, that $2,000 for a machine was too much money. So he couldn't miss me. So that later that night we, I, we go party CES in Vegas, everything is a party. And the guy was there and he convinced me there. <laughs> so he gave me some beers and I bought the miner. And then I started doing that. I mined for a while. I was doing it in my home in Boca Raton. Then I did something in the business, the family business has like an office, I did a little there and I, I mined for a while, then it crashed a little, I mean, it, it, so I sold whatever I had and then I, I paused for a, for a while, but then it started to interest me as a technology. I, with the Venezuelan thing happening, I started to find like a way, okay, how we can use Bitcoin to, to help Venezuelans to buy dollars. And we did that for a while too. The project is called Bitcoin. It still exists. There's some kind of meeting of the minds now. It's not a company, but it's still the, we still meet once in a while. And we try to do that. We kind of actually work for a while. It was, it's called Ben Coin, like Venezuelan, V-E-N Coin. Okay. So we worked out, but we actually launched, we forked the Bitcoin, we launched an altcoin in work, but it was realistic to, to think we will find the miners. This was the year 2013. It was very early. So. It was like an experimentation and it worked, but we couldn't find the only miners were ourselves. So we thought it was fine. And then I moved to Silicon Valley. I started working for Honda. Uh, we're doing research, mostly fintech research, some autonomous thing, but mostly fintech. And they allowed me to work a little. They said that you can take 10% of your time to do research on whatever you want. And I started to do research in bit. And that, that time, is. the fork, yeah, the, the Ethereum fork already happened. So oh, I started to do some, I went back to the old Bencon idea. I said, okay, now with my contracts, we don't need miners. We don't need anything. Let's try to rehash the idea of Bencon. We tried again, we failed again. But what happened there is I got some experience doing smart contracts. So during the ICO frenzy, I did a lot of consultancy, writing white papers and stuff here. So that's what I, I thought, okay, I really want to do this full time. So I stayed like one more year in Honda. I was doing electrification, but they asked me that probably I need to move to LA. So I thought, okay, this is it. This is the time to switch entirely to crypto. I moved to Harmony. Harmony was a great experience. If ever a good crash course of all the goods and bads in crypto, Harmony was that, right? We, I joined in the middle of the, on the ball run and I, we were hit by a hack. We went through the to the bear market. I got the whole thing in well, that. We'll definitely problem. try to unpack a lot of the stages in a bit more detail afterwards. But yeah, that Harmony era. Oh God, I've heard just a glimpse and it's, it's a good one for sure. It's a good story now. 
then I, I left, I left Harmony. I took a couple of, a couple of t- months off during the summer. And then on DEFCON, I met with Alex Shenko in that. Is that where you met for and the first time? Yeah, 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 the first time. We, I had a call with the HR people in Telegram, but they told me, let's start a conversation after, after. Defcon. So I met Alex there. We had a great chat. I did a hackathon. I mean, it was complete. the first time I could do a hackathon in con without be, me being part of a company. So we did the hack ourselves. We won a couple of prizes. So I got re. Because I was in the middle. Should, should I stay in crypto? Should I move to something else? But after Defcon, I got energized by the whole thing and decided to stay in Aurora. Then a few months in Aurora, whatever happened in Aurora happened. And then DevHop, a uh, Lock my door and here I am. Lo que pasó, pasó. Oh my God, that was such a good overview. For the people watching full of envy and resentment, they may think that you're on the podcast because you're Venezuelan and Venezuelan and, and we like each other. So you got a spot on the podcast. And that is a common misconception that people make when they see people that share some attributes or, or, or story. I think that you basically just proved with that overview that you could basically be a Satoshi. You've been there since 2011, the range of experiences and things that you've been doing is, is so wide. I've been taking a bunch of notes, but before we jump into the meat, into the technology, I thought that it may be worth exploring. First note that you're probably a generation older than me. And as you were talking, it got me thinking that we're all living the moment now, but we're experiencing it differently. Based on where we are in life, when you were forking Bitcoin, I was like in university or like a young student and there's like different opportunities that manifest. So I think that this could probably be a theme as we go on the podcast because say a 20 year old is listening to this and be like, where are the opportunities for me right now? And I think that maybe a, a, a trend that we'll see is that older, more experienced people themselves are now creating a bunch of programs and opportunities for the younger generations to get involved. So hopefully we're learning from your experience and yeah, just creating a short path yeah. for people to get involved. But before we get into that, I'm just really curious, Venezuela, what was the, yeah. You mean my, my time in Venezuela? Venezuela is complicated. My family had business there. So at some point, universities in Venezuela, now they have changed, but in my time, they weren't pushing you too much to go and do your own thing. They were mostly trying you to join a company. And that's something like, they would bring a lot of companies. You will get Procter & Gamble doing first all the time and stuff like that. There were some teachers here and there that will encourage you, but it wasn't your thing. So when I decided to do my own company, I got a lot of resistance from the family and, and even people in the university. Like, ah, you should be finishing school first, whatever. And we had a great idea. We believe it was the future. We eventually. The future would prove us right. We were doing mobile payments. We were doing like, we had a device like a square six months before square. In Venezuela, it was impossible to people. We have the cliche stories, people telling us this is never going to happen. Point of sale will never be in a cell phone. This never going to happen. The banks won't let him. The same story that new technologies everyone has, we had the same. So we never got funded. We eventually will get funded. But at the beginning, it was very hard. So we were doing some Mobile banking using SMS, technology called USSSD. Probably a lot of people doesn't remember is that instead of message, you will dial like asterisk, the number, hash, stuff like that, and push send. 
like all non-smartphones. So we were doing that. It was doing fine, but the, yeah. they didn't have the vision enough to do. So you always have to do something in addition to your own thing. So I was working with family. I got some jobs here and there. The, if you wanted to do, if you want to see your future in Venezuela, you will, you probably won't see yourself as software developer in Venezuela. You will say, oh, okay, probably many of my, probably more, all of my friends, they got that graduated from software engineering. They went to other companies to do non-coding things. They were doing most, uh, some of them were consultancies. They did, went to companies like Procter & Gamble, um, stuff like that. So it wasn't like the way to go. Even when I, jo I joined, I worked for Motorola for a couple of years. When I joined Motorola, I started coding, but in my mind, my, my idea is was, okay, I will code for one year to year and then I moved to master. So there wasn't that drive to, to innovate. You didn't feel that you can code your way out of, you know, code your path company. And it was hard. So it was this, should I keep uh, coding? Should I stop coding? Should I be, become a manager in some word, some dumb company? So at some point when the company started to grow a little and we got some funding, we decided, I decided, okay, this is something I want to do, but it was still was hard. So when we lost funding and I got the chance to move to the States, I did. It's very interesting because I really like it because usually when people talk about Venezuela, they talk about the political crisis. But what I tell people is that, sure, there is political instability, but there's also 20 plus million people and everyone living their own life. There's many dynamics and many things happening in the country. Opportunities, challenges. I'm curious. What, this is going to be a two-part question. What factors do you think affect that culture that makes it harder to innovate? I don't know, maybe oil, the tourism, the weather. What could be influencing? people's mindset or like they're off? And do you think that is a challenge that is also present in other countries? My, my case is particular and not very particular, but some, somehow particular. I was doing politics in Venezuela. I was involved. I thought I could change the thing. And so I thought that it was part of the things that should be doing. I said, I, I need to work for the country. We need to change governments, whatever. And I was young, right? <laughs> so I, you will see me on the street. I was throwing stones, whatever. But that was a distraction for me because I thought my thing now that my potential was in another area. And at the end, the, we were influenced by one side. I'm still on this opposition side. You can say that. But after a while, and that's at some point, the, the opposition will break your heart too. So you notice that even though the, the other part wasn't, it was very bad, but it was, it would be hard to find a point where you say, oh, the other part is actually good. And so we were trying, we, we were dealing with same coin, different sides of the coin. So at some point I got this, this illusionated about what happened in the position side. So I said, I better, I don't want to do this anymore. Is this not going to happen? My point is they know they cannot do any change. They're doing just because they want to stay relevant, but they know they, they're not going to win. So I decided to stay, stay back. And I, that's, and when I was in the, there was some political crisis, but it wasn't bad. I thought it was bad, but it wasn't bad. I, I left in the steel, the oil was very expensive and Chavez was alive. So I thought it was bad, but then there were some security issues with my family, like some members of my family being kidnapped and we decided it was time to leave. My father let us chose his, if you want to leave, I will support you. And I had this in my mind that, okay, now is probably the time I can do my thing. 
in the United States, but probably I will get some funding. So I moved to the United States. So my story is a mix. This is part of what I wanted to do as an entrepreneur, part of what I failed to do as a concerned citizen. The actual, the, the crisis that it wasn't a, a money issue, but it was a security issue. But those days with a lot of money in the street, Caracas was a very dangerous place. Yeah. I yeah. decided it was time to. You did something do. interesting that I think I do as well. That even when you talk about Venezuela explicitly, you automatically edit out the politics. It's, I keep coming back to how those experiences form us. Cause once again, there does seem to be a pattern both in countries that are functional or have had experiences that push them to crypto. And if you look yeah. at all the crazy shit in crypto, meme coins, NFTs, scams, the people that are building real or infrastructure and hopefully more and more elements on top to build the open web, I do feel like they share something in common. I actually really liked to see the recent blog post from Ilya about his vision for the open web where he actually lays out all the problems that he sees technology with the world, et cetera, because I'd heard him say that before, like in person, at least Denver and I think Korea. But for some reason, once again, we keep editing out those experiences. I don't know, there's some like subconscious traumas that we have that are what really drive us. I'm wondering, yeah. was there like any point that you can identify that you realized that you couldn't really affect change by throwing stones on the streets. And it's a rite of passage. I did it too before leaving the country. And yeah. that the best way to affect change was actually through code, that you could literally code your way out of hardship. Definitely. There were specific times during my time in Venezuela that I say, okay, this is one is I was working with a political party and we were about to join as a voluntary to to an election. So in the internal party meetings, what they call the volunteers to work, they will say internally, we cannot win. There's no way we cannot win. They have too much power in the regions. We only have some power in the cities, so we cannot win. We must say to the people that we will win. So we must lie because otherwise people won't go voting and then we won't we will lose whatever we have achieved. So we need to speak, still the people that is going to vote thinking that they're going to win because that way we as a party will capitalize some kind of political thing. I thought that was awful. So at that point, after the meeting, I said, that's it. This is, I'm not doing this anymore. I, I, it doesn't make sense. I was doing this because I thought we were, we could at least have a small chance of winning. So I left that meeting completely said, oh, this is it. And then I decided, okay, yeah, no more politics. And then I tried to focus on, let's see how we can, I would, whatever time I was put in, in politics, I would put in the company. So I doubled down the company, decided to move a little more. And then the 2008, 2008 crisis started to be felt on the people that was giving us money. So that I thought that probably we won't have any funding for this. And Venezuela, people in Venezuela will never fund us. So that was the other one. I said, okay, we cannot get the funding here. So we, I, I need to find them somewhere else. So that's, those were the two, two things I said, probably I need to, the future is not here. It's, it's not going to happen. And, and if I stay here in Venezuela, probably he won't be doing this. He will probably find a job or probably working with my parents, my father. And that's not necessarily what I want to do. It's almost like a time traveling with it when the scene keeps changing because when I was at like slightly one generation apart, when you were having 
the realization that it was just not, it was not going to be possible to raise the money. And it was not possible to operate a business. By the time that I graduated high school, the perception had already shifted. And by the time I graduated high school, my feeling was that it was just not a country where you could make a living if you made a living out of your intellect. By the time I was graduating high school, a lot of companies had already gone bankrupt or being expropriated. Like it was very clear that it was political connections above any merits or anything else that mattered. And yeah, it was really frustrating for once again, someone that may not really have much starting capital connections or whatever. Even if you had the will to go and protest and burn shit and throw stones, you realize this game is not possible. So I left and I started university in Australia and on it goes. But yeah, I guess I I still have that grudge. And I do personally see crypto as an equalizing force. Can smart contracts enable people to interact like equals? I hold many, uh, what's the word, controversial uh, positions in my life. One of the people giving more hate is something that happened. I, I, I was doing my, I was in university and I applied for a program for doing internships in Europe in a telecom in Finland. So before that, I never really left the country. I really didn't know how was university was outside the country or whatever. In Venezuela, they sell you this, that Venezuelans, we are the best engineers and universities are probably the best, one of the best in whatever. You buy this. And then I go out. I spent four months in Europe meeting other people. And I started to think probably these engineers are, are better than me or probably as good or probably better than me. So probably the whole Venezuelans, we are, because we are Venezuelans, we are the best. Um, it's not necessarily true. I think being Venezuelan gives you tools like resilience and, and focusing on what really matters. But I felt, especially I remember a conversation with the, some guys from India. I said, these guys are very like us and they are really smart. So that, that also influenced me. The, that travel in Europe for a few months, working and talking and, and doing innovation in Europe with big companies that I thought, oh, probably, probably is not as we were told about how good we are as engineers. And, and it proved to be true. And also I, then later next year, I will go to spend a few weeks in MIT doing some courses in MIT. That day, that, those days, the president of MIT was Venezuelan. And I have a short conversation with him that I, I cannot disclose, but the conversation with him put me even more down to earth. Leaving Venezuela for the first time and engaging with other people was also a, a significant determinant of me going in the direction of doing my own company in Venezuela and later outside Venezuela. So that's, that's something that Venezuela gave me. I don't think it's exclusively for Venezuela. I know people from Colombia. I know people from Mexico, from Brazil, and they have similar spirits. They get these kind of skills of resilience and being resourceful. They get it to, because their, their realities are similar to ours. So that the, those leaving Venezuela for a while brought me back to earth and actually helped me a lot there. I think I've figured out a bit of a formula. So resilience and resourcefulness are only good, like real skills, if you use them to get ahead. Because the problem that I've seen is that there's a lot of people that they're not, they're very, it's called Venezuela, or they're very developing country with challenges at their core, but they never figured out how to harness those skills to push them forward. They become very smart at tricking the system in ways that 
are never going to improve the system or themselves. It's just small wins and very immediate term gains. That's, I think that's true in Venezuela. Venezuela too. You get you, you get to play the system, to game the system, but every time you try to, you feel you can improve, you feel that the, the, the system will somehow stop you. I'm curious how much of that experience led you and your friends to fork Bitcoin twice? Like, why not just use the main one? What was the reasoning behind creating a new version? What did you guys want to improve? The first time, the, the, we decided to fork it because we thought that it was going to be hard to sell this as a Bitcoin thing. Probably we reframe it as a Venezuelan thing. We get some Venezuelans to mine and uh, probably we can start with the, 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 the cost of the hardware was starting to be an issue. Probably we're trying to get, uh, probably we can start with the difficulty lower so they don't have to put a lot of money in hardware, stuff like that. We were experimenting. So we decided to launch our own. But later we thought that probably we should just use Bitcoin. But in the, it was so new that we actually raised some money, not a lot of money, but we raised some like 10K. And we may, we give it back. We what didn't was it called? fail. So some guy we know in LA, they, he gave us 10,000 K to try this. So we tried it with some people buy some bank coins in Venezuela. We bought it in the United States. We were trying to fund, to kickstart the market ourselves. We didn't know much <laughs> how it was going to work, but we were trying to do it. There were some successful transactions from Bolivares to dollars using our network. Not a lot, just 10,000 kind of transactions, but we were trying. And then we thought, oh, well, we probably need to need our own miners. So we saw that's going to be hard. So we tried for a while, but then reality hit and we couldn't keep pushing for that. It would probably be useful to mention to people is that Venezuela had for a very long time, well over a decade, currency control. So you couldn't exchange currency freely. The central bank basically made up an exchange rate, but nobody could buy or sell at that rate. So there was a thriving black market. And it's one of the reasons why it fuels hyperinflation. The minute that people earn money, they try to buy dollars and nobody wants to sell in the local currency because then it may depreciate or they buy the dollars. Like it creates a hyperinflationary cycle. It, and it's been very interesting to see that once the currency control ended around 2017, 2018, inflation also started coming down and the currency is much more stable. So these are some of those economic principles that anyone that has looked into history and economy, et cetera, I'm more familiar with but that we chose to repeat those mistakes. And that's another of the reasons why I really like crypto, because as you guys did, you can fork a chain and have a real life experiment in parallel. There's almost like unlimited space for people explore. You don't have to kill yourselves to see who gets to power to control the one central bank. Have you think of any, or have you come across any other experimentation in the crypto space that has been because I know that you did a thesis, a master's in DAO governance. Yeah. Yeah. My, my approach to DAOs is what well, is this? I, I was finishing my master's in economics and stuff. So I, I, I always been attracted to something called complexity science. So one of the many areas of complexity science is the, the decision-making, like collective decision-making, collective intelligence, how groups how people make decisions efficiently when they work in group, right? So one of the theses or ideas on DAOs 
and in crypto in general as a philosophy is like that the crowd is wise, right? The wisdom of the crowd. So the wisdom of the crowd seems to be, at the beginning, I, I started looking at it and I started to think I was working in Harmony and I, we got issues with DAOs. DAOs weren't working and DAOs in, in Harmony were so bad that it became a meme. So I started to say, okay, let's see how, how, why DAOs are failing. It's because the people or what? So I started to go to the fundamentals of the basics of the theory of the, where DAOs were created. And it was, I basically come to the conclusion, it's only the wisdom of the crowd. Of the crowd. If you have enough people, you do direct democracy and it will work. But it wasn't working. So I was doing this things with the Santa Fe Institute, that is with the complexity science, the main thing, the main institute dealing with complexity science, and started to uh, listen to some talks about collective decision-making. So then every single paper or presentation or whatever I heard about collective decision-making was basically showing me that we were doing DAOs wrong, is general theory seems to be that the, there is no, is not a sing, single solution. So the rule of thumb is the more complex the decision, the less people you need taking the decision. If you go deep into that, it will bring a lot of consequences or implications for how decision-making has to happen in, in DAOs. One of the things is that the DAOs has, haven't been able to create a governance for that is dynamic enough to cover different areas with a single set of governors. So you create a set of governors and they mostly take decisions here and there, but it's not, it's not flexible enough to have, to create like subclusters to make decisions more, more efficient. Right? I think we, we have something like that in NDC right now. We have seen the, the issue in every single DAO, how you can create groups of people that take a specific decision. So you can create like subgroups, you can create like committees, but then when you try to mix direct democracy on that, it gets difficult. It gets very political and probably a little inefficient, right? So I started to become a little more skeptic about in general, how uh, the approach and I tried to do, I, I did kind of, I, I focused my thesis on that. How, how, what is, what it would be a good ways to, to implement some of these ideas about uh, collective decision-making, especially from a couple of uh, researchers, one's called Mirta Galesic, how we can use those to create more efficient structures for DAO. And that's what it's about. And I've been trying to, to work on that while here on DevOp, but my, my work has been focusing on other areas, but I still, I'm looking in detail what is happening in NDC and trying to learn what they're doing and trying to see, and then how we can inform what I have done so far and try to bring some actual white paper about some new ways to implement this DAO structure that facilitate collective decision-making. To be honest, I don't know if we so need an entire white paper. here because I don't have more questions and Alejandro is not here. Can you hear me? Hopefully oh, no, I can, can hear you. This. Ahora sí. Ahora sí. Tú puedes editar esto, ¿no? Claro. Ah, supuse, pero bueno, nunca sabes. Sí, sí, no, no yo edito bastante. 
Sí, sí, yeah, no I, sé si, si respondí la pregunta, pero hacia, hacia eso va, pues. A, a lo, que, lo que estoy dando enfocando ahorita y estoy utilizando en DC como un, como un, un, un ejemplo. Me interesa salvaje. muchísimo la, la rápida politización de las cosas. Es una de las áreas que más me interesa a mí. No en el DC, sino en general con el tema de, con el tema de, de los DAOs, ¿no? Porque lo, el, 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 el nivel de, de politización eh, es puede cambiar rápidamente, ¿no? Y lo, cómo se crean los bandos y cómo, cómo, cómo los bandos cambian pasado en cómo la, las elecciones fueron y cosas así. Esa parte me interesa. Me interesaría saber cómo, o sea, qué que fallas que falla en la elección facilitaron la, la del DAO, por ejemplo. No sé si... Eh, I don't think we need an entire white paper. I think you said the one line, which is correct. Oh. The more complex the decision, the less people that should be involved. What, yep. what I get really frustrated about, and, and we can break this down, you're talking about the rapid politicization of things. Why does it become so political? What does it mean that it becomes political? To me, things getting political are people fighting with words, not actions, not progress, not merit, overpowered, and mostly resources. Everybody wants to be in the room when money gets allocated, And everybody makes moves, some public, some in disguise to get money. But no one is fighting and arguing for who builds a new indexer or an RPC. Like when it comes down to doing real work, not only is no one fighting, but as I said before, there is enough room for there to be many competing solutions and we can judge them by merit. Yeah, I think that it, yeah, that's it's what I think. Yeah, I think, I sorry, I said, I said that in, in Spanish before. I, I think we try to simplify, usually we try to simplify things to try to find a specific, pinpoint a specific cause. But I think we don't understand the initial cause. It could be that the way that the election process was designed is affecting how the DAO develops itself in the future. It could be that the way that the responsibilities of NDC or any DAO is framed affects who runs for office or who doesn't. Some of the, the things I, uh, some of the well, a paper I can say later is very interesting that the main issue with direct democracy, not only DAOs in general, not the main issue, one of the main issues is that the people that have the power of the, the skills to fix, they don't want to run for office. It, it seems obvious, but people seem to be ignoring that. And, and I talked to many people here in, in the case of NDC, they, they say, oh, why, why don't you run? I don't want to do the parties. So that's an issue. It's, it, 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 so it means, and this happened in any democratic system, the people that could probably fix the issue, they won't be elected, not because people don't like it, because they don't want to even run for office. So that's an issue that in DAOs, I think, can be solved. I think that is 100% how, true. That is, and I think I am proof of it because I ran. <laughs> And yeah, I'm not sure if I'm the, the best person for the role, but there I am. Look, I learned a little bit about a model that really caught my attention and I really want to do more research about because it may solve this issue. And I'd be curious to know if you've heard about it. It's called FutureKey. So I think that FutureKey basically works. The way that the decision-making is made is basically it's like a prediction market. So we say, hey, I'm going to put whatever, a thousand bucks that if Boris gets elected to that position, X is going to happen or Y is going to happen. And based on the actual outcome of your actual performance, 
I lose my money or I can make money? Because that could be an interesting way for people to, I guess the issue that we're trying to get to is the several from what I understand, and I'm maybe mixing different sciences here, but one is preference falsification. Preference falsification is, yeah, I like you. I support you. I vote for this one person, but there's actually a mismatch between what that person stands for, the performance, the quality of work, the, the information asymmetry. I signaled something that I don't actually agree with. And maybe if I sat down and I had to you know, learn their actual stances, their actual performance, their actual past actions, et cetera, I may change my mind. So that's a challenge. Like how can we optimize for the decision-making or even like the election of people in a way that the consequences can be known or mitigated against? Because that, that's when I get a little bit aggressive with the NDC, everyone keeps saying it's an experiment. And I'm like, it's not an experiment if you know the outcome and you do it anyway. An experiment is when you don't know the outcome. You have to try your absolute best. You have a hypothesis and then we see if it works. But we're doing some things that the outcome is predictable. It's not that complicated. And to me, it's fascinating, not only that you have that DAO, that master's in DAO, whatever research you've done, complexity science, sounds pretty good. I've never heard that before. I said in my NDC panel at Nearcon when they asked me what the NDC is doing right, I said, look at DevHub. I find it interesting. You can uh, give compliments and you can criticize both models, but we do have a different way of doing things. And at least from my vantage point, it seems like DevHub has achieved a lot in the last six to 12 months. I told you, I think that's a personal opinion. And based on what I've done, my research, it may be is that you are right. We need experimentation and the way to do experimentation is not launching an all powerful, all uh, fun, very well funded DAO. That's what I didn't like with the NDC. You, we were acting as if NDC was going to work. So like, okay, we know it's going to work. So what we did it and no one knew and it's hard to know. So that's what I like of DevHub. I think DevHub, we are small. We are doing a lot of experimentation. We are trying stuff and we are open to to be criticized. We're trying to be as transparent as possible. So probably that would be the first, one of the first approach. We need to understand which model of DAOs will work for an organization like, like here. The, the few DAOs that are successful in other protocols are very specific and they are very, they have very specific set of rules. I haven't seen an, uh, a governing, like a general governance for a protocol working. So there is a lot of experimentation, not a lot of things we need to try before we can define. And but that's something we're trying to do. And at least my, but there's two separate things. Governance of a protocol is different from a group of people with an objective doing things to achieve that goal. There's a way that I see it. DevOps has a very clear mission yeah. and you can see very specific programs and actions that move their needle towards that vision. I'd love if you could share about near campus, about Hackabox, very pragmatic things that you can see how this is a net value add. Why have we spent months discussing community funding, quote unquote, when these two very simple programs will most likely be the single driver of growth for community because we're going at universities and we're enabling anyone to organize Hackabox. Like they're the same, but different. 
how do you see that comparison? So we're doing two things. We're doing the work that needs to be done from, I will go deeper into that, like universities, all this stuff. But at the same time, we are experimenting of ways of doing this. What is the best way to do this? We are doing a lot of A-B tests. So we, yes, we're doing the, the campus approach. We rebound the DevRails. Now it's mostly technical DevRails. We are doing a lot of the challenges. We are focusing of post hackathon engagement. We're doing the gamification. That's what we're doing. Uh, but we're trying to, f to figure out a way to do, uh, of doing it and still be a scalable, uh, still being a decentralized approach, right? What does so it have to be? That's the Because two. I'll give you a specific uh, example. I was sitting in the marketing DAO when we processed applications, pay people to go to NearCon, and we had a problem. Some applications were absolute shit and we couldn't really find a way to tell people. And once you open the floodgates, like I saw the NearCon stipends for DevOps this year, if I recall correctly, it was a very simple fixed amount per region based on distance and, and expected cost of travel. You, to be eligible, you must have participated in a previous near hackathon and to actually get the money, you must have made a valid submission at the hackathon and obviously probably being there. And I was like, this is, this just makes so much sense. This is literally common sense. This is something that one or two people sit down in a room and they ask themselves, how can we ensure that the money is going to the people that it is intended to? And then you create your criteria and it may not be perfect, but it's not this disaster of decentralized decision makers that none of them puts themselves in the shoes of the applicant, in the shoes of the scammer, in the shoes of the decision maker and, and person that's meant to look at the community treasury. And yeah, the outcomes are very different. We have struck to get programs off the ground on the community side because people never get to the right like mindset. Like it's we're always missing the frameworks that are necessary for success. I can tell you why we are achieving that, those easy wins and also not so easy wins. It's, I'm not saying the other teams are not, but our team is very professional. Professional in the, in the sense of we, we have people coming from the industry. People have been working with the traditional and we know how things are being done. So we're bringing that experience and we want it to be not some kind of Yes, professional. So there are ways to do this and the, the way to do this is approach it as, as a task, as a job. And when the, if we succeed, the whole ecosystem succeeds. So let's try to put our best of our knowledge to do this on zero political motivation of any kind or anything. We just want the job to be done and we want the job to be done as, as good as possible. This is a very daring line of thinking, but I like it. Are you saying? Are you trying to say that the opposite of a professional from a company would be community? Community is the lack of professionalism. It's like the unstructured rest. Uh, the community is not, and that's where my research comes in. My, the community is not well suited to deal with complex decisions. So they, even if the members of the community is very professional, If you have a lot of PhD in that community, but the, the community is not, doesn't have the right structure, they will use another criteria to take the decision and then it will get difficult. So that's probably that explains it. It's not that they are not professional, it's that the incentive for are different for what we want to achieve. 
if you leave the community to choose who should go or not should go, there is a principle in complexity that every system can be game and it will be game. So you have to start based on that. So you leave the community to make the decisions of one thing, only the community. We, I'm not saying we shouldn't hear the community, but if you leave the decision to make the say, okay, this is who is going to, I don't know, to Nircon or who doesn't, first, it will be quickly be game immediately, like in five minutes, it will, because it's easy to game. Then you will get a lot of noise, right? So it will be hard to the community itself to decide what is noise and what is, is not, right? So that's the reason you have to have some kind of different level of decision to reduce noise. The best example in, is, for this is not, is not in crypto, it's cooperatives, especially cooperatives in Switzerland. They are really good doing cooperatives. And this is the community. They own all the common goods, but still they find a way to create a second level because they know that the whole issue that they, we are creating this is because there is a, there is always a conflict of interest between the parts. They know they cannot decide it themselves out of just voting. I'm not saying that the community is not professional, is that the community is usually not a structure in the way that is needed to take that, those kind of decisions. You so, didn't say it. I did. Okay, exactly. Look, the thing is that I, so, you're very professional. I think you just validated your argument just by explaining it. And I am the unprofessional one, but look, I've always said, and my issue is that from community to communism, it's like a couple of misspelled letters. And mm -hmm. perhaps you and I can get a much stronger reaction to what communism is because we fucking lived it. And some people in the ecosystem, it is like a hipster reference that, that may actually embrace. And that's the difference. For instance, you know what the most important thing to have inclusion is? The right to exclude. If you want to be allowed in, you must, by definition, also have the right to kick someone out. And that is an issue. Yeah. Even if you look at a cooperative in Switzerland, it's not a cooperative of the entire country where a grandma in a different canton gets to vote on how you grow your chickens and your eggs a hundred miles away. There's a criteria to join. We must have shared values. We understand our responsibilities. If we fail to do something, there are... It was there. Out if you, yeah, of course I'll kick you out of record. So you took. So what I want to see now, and I may be foreshadowing something, I want to see decentralized builder collectives that stand for something. Be selective on who you let in. Not just any random wanting an airdrop that goes into your Telegram channel. That's your community. That's not your community. And by the way, I got scammed by the same dude that had like seven accounts on one of the meme coin airdrops. And that's when I realized there's very few of us here. Stand for something unashamedly and have a criteria to let people in. Like I want to create decentralized builder collectives and we can have a budget for it. If you have at least one or two devs, get a product person, get a designer, get a fucking crazy visionary dude to run sprints and go away and build stuff. You want to let people into your collective because you're killing it? Great, but have criteria. You don't show up to the daily standups. You don't do what you're meant to be doing. You just have a shit attitude and are breaking down the mood. You get kicked out. Go start your own decentralized builder collective. I don't like this idea that everything and everyone is community and we all have to bend over to this amorphous community that has no definition and we're all being held back by this lack of standards and ambition. Yeah, I agree with you. 
it had some philosophical issues with the whole blockchain basis, the whole permissionless. Yes, I'm that's not. the reason I, I yeah. If you think of a community, mm -hmm. blockchain community is actually relatively easy to define. Go to ETH Denver. If you try hard, or even not that hard, you can identify many different things that these people share. And it's never going to be a 100% match. Some of it is ideological, some of it's technological, some of it is whatever, the weed, whatever the case may be. When you put us side by side with the people at an American football stadium, dude, I've never felt more like an alien than when I speak with people outside of crypto. And we are a very diverse and very strange community, but we do have a lot of things in common. So I do think that we have, perhaps it was easier to be like super wide and inclusive because we've always been a small community with things in common. So maybe it's a scaling challenge. How do we clearly state what are our values and what we're trying to build? Dude, I'm happy that Ilya is back at Foundation as CEO. And even if he's torching everything on his way and sacking everyone and there's a bit of uncertainty and chaos, at least now we can say openly, we are a builder's blockchain. We want founders, we want hackers, and we just literally don't give a fuck about everything else. Just say it explicitly. Because we spent a long time trying to determine like what is Nier's identity. And we had some marketing lady two years ago saying that the Rainbow Bridge was gay and she got sacked. And then we tried to be corporate. And then we tried to do the boss, no one knows where the fuck the boss is, literally. Now, I feel like we're finally getting into a rhythm, but we have a lot of room to catch up. So, yeah, I, I think that we're going to be a lot more mindful of those things. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to, to do in DEFOD, be that second layer that can still represent the community, still bring, get feedback from the community, but create some rules that we follow professionally and not politically. So that's probably a good definition of what we're trying to achieve definitely focus only developers and builders and stuff like that but that's that would be the, the general definition that's the reason we are able to do some stuff easily because we inside or if you our discussion some of our of most of our meetings are public you just can join you can see the way we handle this is completely send me an invite i'll set that shit on fire yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, i don't you, know you, I can tell, you get to the Thursday meeting with the death rails and it's yeah very, let's do it very yeah I don't I'm want to tell you something. No bullshit, but, but, but gonna, it's, a, it's a cliche, but it's a lot of no bullshit happening there. So I, that's going to make me look very silly. I'll tell you something. I may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. I started learning how to code because I want to be a dev rel. I reckon I've got social skills okay. and I can sell this shit. I'm like 10 lines of code away from being the best dev rel. So yeah, it's yeah. aspirational, but I'll join the meetings for now and, and observe from others. Look. I don't want people to think that I'm, a, I'm an easy host and I'm letting the guest get away. I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you the last thing mm -hmm. that DevOps is doing well and then one thing that you fucked up. Okay. okay. First one is branding. Branding is so important. People don't understand that you need to occupy real estate in people's minds. And DevOps has managed to build an identity and it's seen it now as an institution, which is remarkable because it's full of nerds and subject matter expertise. It's not the easiest to market. But yeah, I think that you guys have done amazingly well on that front. The only thing well, that you fucked up. Yeah, before you go to that one, that's, they did that. We brought people that do profession, uh, branding as a profession 
they do that. Like Sasha, she's a very a great designer. Jose is a guy that's really good at bringing the message. So that's what we're doing. We're just try, treating this as a professional thing more than so a, the solution is just to know, bring professionals. Uh, Who could have thought? Now, I'll tell you uh -huh. the fuck off. And I was you hoping that you would up. notice the merch. This t-shirt that I'm wearing yeah. is causing me confusion, anxiety, body dysmorphia. It, it isn't near, it's like sideways. It's the dev is like on the side. I'm, I always try to put on merge to, to connect with my guests where possible, but dude, this t-shirt, I don't know if it's my posture, I'm unevenly distributed. I don't know what's going on there, but yeah. I, I told you something about merchandise. People think that we've been doing this for a long time, but we are not. Like the whole team as it is right now has four months, three months. Oh, we, they all came, yeah, they all came on running and one of the balls that were dropped in, in general, the events sometimes was emerged because we didn't have the time. We didn't, the fonts, the different countries get the font difficult. So we try to do our best and we're working this year's merch will be mind blowing. We are not just doing the typical t-shirts and stuff. We're doing more stuff and that we're trying to get better quality of the t-shirts, the signs that are, and that the time between that, that t-shirt came out and the final design, design was out. It was like one week. Sasha worked like crazy. She made it happen. And then we had only one week before Nirkan because Sasha just joined the team. Uh, pass. Oh, Sasha is a great, one of the best acquisition we have is someone that have this vision of creating interesting designs and I, we are happy we, we got her. She's amazing. And I actually met her and Anton in, in Porto, yeah. randomly, we just were at the same yeah. cafe, oh. which I guess it's all that hard because there's 10 people in Porto, but now on the community and professionalism, this is going to be a fantastic segue. My theory is that community is basically everyone. And as we move to the next year of, let's call it community governance, I do feel like people should prove themselves. So maybe you're not a professional, like in a corporate sense, but maybe you have a project and you can prove what you can work until they work to that project. These concepts are, shouldn't be hard. They're there in the house of merit, which the, the original creators of the framework sort of misunderstood what merit meant and, and we didn't really have a criteria. The criteria for voting should probably be revised as well. The reason why I mentioned this is because I am aware that every time that you establish a higher standard, you should probably also have a responsibility to then create pathways or opportunities for people to be able to rise to that standard. And this is where I see Hackabox as a fantastic way for people to enter the ecosystem, learn, and then what opportunities could follow from there. And a senior campus is a way to catch young people willing to learn, willing to put in the time. So yeah, I'd love to learn more about those programs. I'm actually going back to Australia in March to get near campus going in a couple of universities there. So tell me more. Yeah, one thing, professionalism is not about degrees or anything. Professionalism is about commitment with the final output. How committed are you? How committed are you willing to take the heat when you make mistakes? When uh, how, that's what I mean with professionalization. It happens that if you work with the, you come from traditional work to traditional companies, you gain a lot of that. But you experience you know how, what, what needs to be done to bring something to, to the final outcome. And that was the thing when I joined DevOps, 
That's one of the things I was asked and we committed. We will finish everything we started. We won't leave things without, even if it doesn't work, we will finish it and we will try to learn from it. So that's something that have helped us in, in and, and then, and we are working on that. We know, for example, the proposals are hard to do. Most of the proposals are not in big, in the best shape, but we decided not to dis, dismiss them right away. We are trying to set a standard. So we've been working with a lot. I've been spending some proposals. I've been spending multiple hours per week with team to, to improve the, the proposal. So we are not just working to, to, to help that part, especially with teams that they haven't gone through this process. So we have a commitment, not only to be professional ourselves, you know, to, as you said, to make, help other teams to raise to any standard of a decent proposal. We cannot fund bad proposals, but we can help you make it to the point that is fundable. So as long as you are a person that is trustable and your team is in good standing, we will help you to bring your proposal to a point that we can fund it. So that's one thing I wanted to add to that. I think that is a great example for other, for the NTC. Uh, there is some feedback that we have received that some of the proposals made to the House of Merit are not receiving enough feedback. I think it's a great example set by a DevOps and a grassroots style should probably follow that too. But yes, let's get into near campus and near Hackabox. Okay. Hackbox is not my program, so probably I can give you all the details you want. I can give you a, a good overview, but, but in general, Hackbox is our solution. It's Maria's project, how we can support communities to bring to do their own events, mostly hackathons. I won't limit it to hackathons, but developer-oriented events. So we are helping them, we're supporting them, and we're guiding, we're guiding them, working with them, so when they decide. So if they have a team, they have a good idea, and they, it makes sense in the region, we will, they will help you, we will help you to bring the hackathon or whatever the event is to life. That's the hackbox. New Campus, it came from the idea that there is a lot of developer potential in universities that hasn't been exploited. I don't want to use the word exploited, but it hasn't been attended. Yeah, that's the word. What can we do? <laughs> so we started to approach universities. We, what we're trying is these blockchain clubs already existed. So they have their own day-to-day -day activities. So we wanted to give, to fund them and they give the support so they can, can keep doing that, not only uh, not exclusive to NIR. We are interested that they amplify Web3 as a technology, as a, not only as a technology, as a viable stack for develop yourself as a professional, as a career path. Not, of course, we ask many students, they, they say they want to do their own startup, but in any case, our focus is we want you to, to help these developers to do a career in Web3. That's the main approach. So we started with the blockchain clubs. Uh, we have around 15. Hopefully, depending on some things happen, we will try to uh, grow it on to 50. Then we added another stuff. We have like the research. We work with the protocol team. We are funding one, uh, a couple of proposals for research based on we spend some kind of papers. We're trying to post a position near as a valid right now, like 90% of the research in blockchain is done either in Bitcoin or in Ethereum. So we are trying to get the researchers to 
to see near as a valid stack platform to do their own research. Whatever it is, you have to be genetic web three or crypto or blockchain security, whatever they can do it in near. So that's part of that approach. And now we have another, we are launching a smaller one is called, one is called near business school is for non-technical blockchains clubs and near camps. That is basically for boot camps for an institution that doesn't give formal diplomas or degrees. Those are new. We're launching, we launched test last year. And I, for Q2, we would probably push those to the next level. So we start to accept the first bootcamp. Bootcamp had been challenging because most of the bootcamps, they are for profit. So the, the main objectives of these bootcamps is making money. So that it makes it hard for us to find a, a middle ground, but we will get there. We will get, we will be in the hackathons. We'll be in a lot of hackathons. We will be trying to engage more in students, more universities and we are also working with the other part of the DevRels to do the Certified Developer Program. We're actually now certifying developers in here. And we started in Mexico and we will expand to other regions this year. So that's what mostly education covers. And we have the other things. We have the DevRels doing the same. Maria handles events beyond Hackbox. That means we will be in most of the eight big events. We'll be in Denver. We'll be doing a lot of hackathons, a lot of bounties. We have post, post engagement activities. We're doing like a, a, a weekly challenge on, on Twitter. So people get rewarded for doing the technical challenge. And yeah, you will see more of that coming this but year. Sir Boris, two questions. As we talked about that intersection between community as a larger group of people and then professionals. If, if we assume that fantastic professionals can do like a narrower set of tasks to enable the community to grow and, and achieve its object, objective. Do you have any views on how all these people that we interact with through all these initiatives, what would it look like for them to become part of the near community? Because I am sometimes worried and frustrated that as far as I can tell, and maybe I'm in a bubble, but the near community is not growing. It's the same people and we just talk to each other and sometimes we're fighting, sometimes we're agreeing and neither one of them is growing the ecosystem. I want to know where are the new people. And that's why I'm putting together centralized builder collectives to gamify experimentation and growth. And I want to go to the universities and, and get the young people in. But I'm really curious as someone that is, you know, closer to these well-structured programs, how do we turn participants into community members? Yeah, so that's part of why we're doing that. Joe's team is working on, on conversion. You're right. You're right. It's, yes, it is growing. It's not growing as fast as it should, but it's growing. It's just and some areas has grown crazy, like the social engagement and the awareness of the, of death of a near general have the last year was very good, but it's also, it's very new. So it's hard to know exactly how it's impacting, but we have some ideas. And we have a plan for 2024. We, we have such ideas and we are so committed that we are having a town hall next week where we will, it's probably, I think it's January 31st. We will advertise it and you, everyone will be able to see what we've done, how much is impacting the metrics and what we will, we keep doing on, on 2024. But answer your question in both, yes, we are aware of that, exactly how we can actually measure and track the growth in the ecosystem. 
I know we know it's an issue and we are designing programs specifically for that. For example, we have something called X-Founders that we launch after it Denver. Is X-Founder is, a, is an accelerator program only for hackathon participants. It's a, they focus themselves on bringing hackathon participants and accelerating to a business. So we're doing a test with them, a small test. They have done it for other protocols. So we're doing that. We're trying for the happy Denver winners. So the e Denver winners, they will go and anyone who wants, they will be able to be accelerated by this. And we have other kinds. We are launching something called Bounty Boosters is that if you win a hackathon, any hackathon that is not a near sponsor, using boss, we match the price. So if you go any hackathon anywhere, you can prove that you win the hackathon using boss or probably, These are, know, sir, but probably near smart. They're all amazing. Yeah, right. I, cause I'm getting yeah. old. I hate to admit it and I lie about my age, but I am getting old. So I keep coming back to, yeah, that retention, but also that, that sense of belonging. One of the, the metrics that I'm trying to build into assessing whether these decentralized builder collectives are successful is how many evangelists can we get? How many people are out there and everyone that they meet, they represent here, they're an ambassador. We're thinking about doing decentralized business development from NDC. You bring as a founder, they deploy your maintenance, they have real users, they raise external capital. Let's put a, an incentive to all of those things. Like we need as many agents out there spreading growth. And I can't imagine, but think that they will come from all of these programs that they about pass. I don't know. I'd love to and I, brainstorm how to gamify things. We do have ambassadors. We do have ambassadors, but I, I, we, I think also we're not doing well with them. We should engage them more and we need with more my experience. Course, we have a, I would call myself an evangelist. I have never applied for an ambassador program including after I resigned from Manipool and I was going to stay yeah. engaged as an ambassador. Sorry, I mean evangelist. I don't know why I say ambassador, but I mean evangelist. I, we have a lot of people that they all the time are promoting near and we are not recognizing that work. So I will try to fix that this year. We will try to fight. Uh, because to, fix to me, that. the difference is all these people, and it may just be in my head, but to me, the difference is that an evangelist is proactive. They're doing it because they want, they're doing it because they really feel it. Yeah. The ambassador is a contributor and they assist you yeah, when yeah. you ask them to, or they do as told, if you want to put it less PC. Yeah. Different people may structure the programs differently, but overall, yes, I've seen ambassadors being very passive. They do the minimum that they're told that the quality of the program depends on how specific or how quality the instructions were. It's very hard to manage them. They're often recruited in regions where you don't speak the language. So it's hard to track progress. Like. We just need evangelists. We need people that we see in their passion. They'll go and learn new tech shit we don't have to say to them and they'll figure it out. As you said, we just need that recognition. Yeah. Maybe give them like a badge yeah. and for every month that they're active, just, yeah, recognition is the main thing. Yeah. And I know that Joe I mean, is big on this recognition side of things. So I'm sure that he yeah. can give some great insights on that. Yeah. We need to do better with the evangelists. And actually, if you can find any team can find a, a way to, to improve our relationship with the evangelists, please let's, let's work on a proposal. That's one of my personal, because I've been talking with a lot of people that they do a lot of things for near and they don't expect any, anything in return just because they like the ecosystem or the value or whatever. 
And so I think I mean, it should be. I mean, if you be. remove the personal expectation, my experience for the last three years has been people ask me like, oh, do you work for the New York Foundation? What is your role? What do you do? And I was like, for the most time, I've never had a role. I've had a, a bit of you know, governance here, a word for Metapool, which is a private company, but I saw myself as an evangelist. I promoted near very aggressively and I tried to onboard people, et cetera, just because I feel part of the community. I want to see the community succeed. I'm recognized and rewarded. Amazing. But yeah, it, it was that awkward moment where people ask, like, why are you doing this? If no one gives a fuck that you're doing it and no one acknowledges it. I think the furthest that have been when I go to conferences and I'm the only one that is not a foundation, I go to a proximity employee, I share taxis with them. Sometimes I get a free ride. Now they invite me for the near foundation dinners, which is a nice gesture. It's always nice food. Maybe those will go away because there's new management in place. And I think we're more conscious with money now, but it took a very long time to feel acknowledged and part of a group, which is strange because I'm not part of that group. It's like I invented myself a role or a job that doesn't actually exist. And I'll keep doing it because I'm terrible asking for money. But the question is, how do we get 20 AVBs? What would it look like right now if we had 50 Joes and Jareds and AVBs? And yeah, it's, that's, I don't have an answer for that. that that's what I we need. When I'm going together. Is the same I did with you, right? I, the moment I identify you as a as an evangelist, as, an, as someone important or relevant, I engage you and say, what, what did I say to you? Say, Alejandro, let's do something, whatever. Let's do something. You're good doing podcasts. Let's do a podcast. So that's what I've been doing. I did this with the people in Mexico, but, but it won't scale. I've been trying to find a solution that every time I, know, I, I meet someone that I know it's, it's not part of the ecosystem and they will, they probably will be able to help. I immediately try to engage and say, let's try to do something. It's not something systematic and it needs to be improved. And I agree with you. We need to, we need a hundred ABVs, but yeah, I, I don't have an answer for that yet. And you, but it's in the mind of the I acknowledge and we want your efforts. Like DevOps, as I said, I'm, I'm pretty impressed how it's growing and, and how much things have improved. And I'll put it out there. We never know who's listening for the right amount of money, which right yeah. now is not too much money. I am open to getting cloned. Build the right technology. Let's go. We're going to experiment. Now, I know that we're pressed with time and there are a couple more things that I wanted to ask you. The first one is the same question that I asked Alex Gyoki, former chief product officer at Pagoda. He has since moved on. But the question that I asked him was around the challenges of coming in as a product person or community, you know, more on the people side and going into very engineering heavy organization. In his case, it was even harder because his product, but the product that they're building is for engineers. So the engineers had a very unique take on things. How are you finding it being, as far as I understand it, the first or one of the first contributors to DevHop that is on that community side or the less hardcore engineering and more people growth, human. I've been trying to, I, I've been on the heavy core and the engineering all my life. This is the first time and switching to, to something more that I think I can impact the protocol more. Right. So the, what I'm, my first approach is try to 
remember what, how it was when I was an engineer and what the death rails of the, of the community people were missing. So I'm trying to focus on that. The main challenge always is trying to not take things personal. Sometimes I gain a lot of uh, criticism. So, or not only me, the thing, why you're paying that or why you're paying this or you are discriminating, stuff like that. That's normal. And I recognize that people have doubts and they entitled to some kind of answers. But some people, it's hard not to take it personal sometimes. Say, oh, what's your issue with me, man? I'm just working here and trying to do my best. So the, I, I, my first approach, my first thing with that was in Harmony. And it was a very tough school because Harmony community is tough. Here, I, that was, I'm trying to say, it's not personal. This guy, he's just trying to get answers. So I'm trying to get into a place that they don't have to be that critical, that all the information is out there already, as much as possible. And when it happens, try to engage, try to diffuse, try to say, okay, it's not like that, and let's talk or whatever. And that's one of the main challenges. Sometimes it's hard because you feel, okay, I, need, I have so many things to do when I have to you know, sit with this guy that doesn't know, have any percent of nothing, and then I have to give them strength. And, but I think it's, at the end, it's worth it. It's worth that the community get your point of view. And so that's been challenging on, on is that a challenge in any crypto community. I think for the standards in your community is better. So I'm happy for that, but it's still sometimes a challenge. Trying to not get no political and try to be reasonable all the time is probably the, try to assume that the other people has the, the, the have the, the, their heart in the right place. Even if it doesn't show, try to always assume that they are coming from the right place. Sometimes it's hard, but I try to do that. So most of the 99% of time is works for me. It's okay. We can make the people that come very critic to me. I eventually I'm able to, to handle the situation and make it to a place that everyone is. Alive. It's interesting that we're ending where we started. I think it's a superpower to have two cultures. And there's many times when I can listen to a you know, native Spanish speaker, sometimes even Portuguese. And I can listen to them in English or I read what they write. And actually, I can actually see the train of thought. It's almost like I can like reverse translate and understand what they're trying to say. And in English, maybe it's not like the exact literal thing, but you know what they're trying to say. And sometimes it's not even what they're trying to say, like literally with the words, but I know where they're coming from. I understand. And then, okay, they're not saying A, B, and C. They're concerned about D. And they're just trying to explain it in a way that they are assuming that the other person knows. I think that it's interesting and that's why we dabbled on, on the Venezuela conversation because I feel like our challenge needs to be to acknowledge that every country is unique, every country has challenges, every country has opportunities. My perspective is out of 8 billion people, how do we find the people in those countries that want to get ahead, that are willing to put in the work, that are going to hustle, that they may be frustrated by the local pile of shit and that they will push the boundaries and get themselves out of hardship and hopefully elevate everyone around them. We can't be lowering ourselves to cater and accommodate for the lowest common denominator because guess what? Most of the world is fucked. We need to find a way to once again activate and find as many agents for change. Look, maybe after we have a hundred Matlock here's and a hundred Joes and a hundred AVBs, fuck it. We go for the entire world right? and we can be one big charity. Right now, it's finding that balance between we acknowledge you, we respect you, but right now, we need a very specific profile. 
Like, where are the hustlers? Where are the people that are going to, as you say, work on an objective and be results-oriented without counting hours or without counting pennies? It's a tough bargain. But I think that at least you and I, if anything implicitly, because we may not always say it explicitly, we can see that, like crystal clear, who is trying to take advantage, who is trying to maximize value extraction, and who really cares. And they may not know shit, but you can just see that hunger, that passion. They're like, give me a chance and I'll figure it out. All they need is a tiny bit of opportunity and they'll do it. So it's a tough game, but I think that you're doing well so far. Yeah. Thank you. And, and to, to close, I can tell you, that's the reason I, I think I believe in, I'm much better in face-to-face. That's the reason you will keep seeing, at least this year, traveling heavily. I'm going to the places I, I want people to see your face and to sit and talk to us, try to find that people. I think uh, and when I met people in Vietnam, we should be doing to meet the people locally. And you will see me around and we're open to get these people in. We, we will find a way to get in. Not only the evangelists, but the developers or whoever wants to do good near, we will try to find in a way, especially if they are developers, a way in. If, if not a developer, we will find a way to guide them to other places. But if you are developers, we will definitely find a way for and try to help you with the proposals, with the funding. Uh, if you get issues, we will try to help you develop yourself as a near person. So yeah, knock our door. We're always there. We are pretty we're a pretty relaxed team. <laughs> so we, you would usually find us around very informally. So in any event or just on the Telegram, whatever, feel free to come with any question or yeah, we'll be here. For some reason, like Maria, a little bit intimidating. But when I finally interacted with her during the hackathon at New York, I realized she's very serious. She's very professional, very structured, and she doesn't fuck around. She's also so friendly and polite and approachable. It's, it's a very interesting balance. Same with Vlad. And I guess Vlad looks more approachable. But even Max, he, when I met him for the first time at the at your, your Cruise last year, same, I was like a big dog, core tech engineer, slightly intimidating looking, but he's very friendly, very open. I would encourage everyone to, yeah, they, to they, take the leap. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. we can be tough, but at the end, everyone is open to help. Sometimes maybe here, probably the reason I'm probably a little more relaxed is because I have less time here. So they, they already have been doing this for a long time and they, they know who is coming with what. But at the end, they're always very open. They will always, everyone will always answer your questions. So they are, I, I can tell you, they are all, not only the really professional, they all want this to succeed. So they will help anyone to do it if they really want to do it. Amazing. Now, last one, it's technically cheating. <laughs> when I okay. asked you about the challenges of being on the human side in a heavy tech organization, I got an amazing response, but it wasn't quite the, the response that I was expecting or, or I guess a question that I asked. At the very beginning, you said something that I thought was really interesting. What you try to do is try to remember the days when you were an engineer to build empathy with the rest of the team. My question to you is, does the rest of the team have any frame of reference to being a, a human, as in on that human side? Do they understand marketing? Do they understand business development? Do they understand the community and the importance of the face-to-face? 
I, I think I, I bring a specific mix of things to the DevHub being from Latin America and the experience they have in traditional, but not everyone has the, not, it's, we are not supposed to be the same role. Some people are more, people face more to the people. Some other people prefer to be more on the technical side, but I'm definitely, they're all aware of the, the challenges that the developers trying to do Web3 in near half. So they are always open to that. If they, they approach it the same way I'll do it. Like our, I was in the engineering side. I don't know. It's hard to know, but I can tell you in my interaction with them and the working what we're doing with the team that they, they have really, they try really hard to make things happen and to, to be fair. But at the same time, we get a lot of, a lot of heat. So sometimes they, we need to be a little more firm on those responses. So probably the firm responses will come from someone else sometimes from me. It changes, but it's hard to know if they approach the same way as me, but I can, I, what I can tell you is that they will always consider that the, whatever is coming from the other side is coming from a person and they will consider that into the mix. Always. Nice. Look, the challenge that we have as decision makers now, especially very popular, is that there's legacy decisions and things that sometimes we have to untangle explicitly or implicitly, the Eric era of abundance, and then the rig era, some priorities and not others, and now the Ilya era shifting again towards founders. And some people may have been used to doing things a certain way at a certain point in time. And it's really hard because have things and priorities changed or the decision making, the decision maker is an idiot or being unfair. And that's the tension that we have. We had an early claim to that with the marketing DAO because we really had to cut back. We narrowly avoided a harmony situation there. And yeah, we copped a lot of shit. I, I was relentlessly attacked for 18 months because of that. Yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah, I can tell you a last thing before leaving is that we, no matter what, we're definitely we're doing the things our own way. That's that you can tell for sure. We have a vision. We, a max has set the standards and we think we all are on top of it. And so we are doing the things that way, no matter what was happening in the past, no matter what is happening in the sea, no matter what's happening. So we, we believe in this way of doing things and we will keep doing things. I, I told you once that the, we were still on the honeymoon, but that we are leaving the honeymoon and I, it's, I think it's going to get hard. So we, we are ready for that, but we believe in this and we're not doing it for ourselves. We believe not only that. It's good for DevHub, but it's the way to go from near. So we will, we will double down in, in our approach, no matter what. I'm curious. One of the challenges that I saw with Ethereum is that a lot of the core devs made a lot of money, but there was still a lot of things to deliver on the roadmap, which kind of led to the roadmap never actually being delivered or it's been behind schedule it's years. Do you find that core tech team has like a stronger vision or motivation that money aside, whether they've made money or not, they're just very committed to that vision, almost in a way that it's hard for us to understand. Uh, I think maybe Ilya only started to communicate it more recently. I think I heard a beautiful explanation from Vlad in one of the Twitter spaces with you, but I feel like it's very, feels very purist. And some people may confuse that sometimes with elitist or, or exclusionary, but 
they yeah. do seem to have a very unique approach to the work that they do and, and being able to shut out the outside world. Have you sensed that or? I, I've been working with uh, some near campus stuff with the protocol team. And I can tell you that being on the protocol site is hard. It's a lot of work and they are, they're focused on what they're doing. And I, I have them in high regard and they are a really great team and they are doing what they have to do. If they need to communicate more or less, I don't know, probably, but I, I don't think is there necessarily their role to do it. I think probably it's, it's part of the near as a community or as a company or as a project to, to make this more publicly, but I think they're doing a great job. And the, the thing they're doing with the zero knowledge stuff and all the thing, I think it's great. And you setting us up pressure. here, we do have to communicate yeah. more. That's my job. Get me those motherfuckers in the DevOps podcast. Let's get this going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I can get them, but they might not be, I am trying. I've been asking to do, and I'm working on them. So yeah, but it's, you're right. Probably your job, our job, my job to, to communicate, to help them, not to help them, to, to whatever they're doing, let them focus on that. And it's our job to take it to the outside. But yeah, I was, I'm working, believe it or not, trying to find you a good, a set of good uh, for the, for the podcast, but sometimes it's tricky, but uh, we, we will get there. Amazing. Looking forward to it, Boris. I know that you're meant to be at a talking culture 15 minutes ago, so I'll let you go. Thanks so much for joining and speaking with me for two hours in English. So strange and <laughs> surreal, but I learned a lot. I thought I knew you, but I feel like I just discovered a whole bunch of more Boris that I didn't know. So thank you. I think we're very lucky to have you. Yeah, same. Thank you for having me. And I guess I'd see you in a few weeks in Denver, right? Yes, you will. Okay, my friend. Have a good night. See you Bye. soon. Bye. Ah. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.